Good morning, everyone. It's been a long time since we sang that song. But the words are beautiful, and the thought that it expresses for us is something that is... I have difficulty even trying to flesh out or explain. That God knows who we are, that God gave us our name, that he knows our name and he is with us in times that are good and times that are bad. That is such a blessing. Amen? We have been uh, working through a, a special time here at Sonoma Avenue where uh, the leadership has spent the last uh, year or more, I think I give a different number every time, um, we've said 12, we've said 15, somewhere in that range, uh, meeting and praying, listening and seeking out God's wisdom on who he wants us to be as a church. And so a couple weeks ago, we introduced you to our new vision statement that God has led us to as a leadership, and we believe that God has led us to as a church. And the statement is this, we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. When you think about that statement in the context of the song that we just sang, it helps us to understand a little bit more what we say when we say that God changes everything. So often when we come together and talk about a vision or a mission or some sort of purpose statement for the church, we immediately want to jump into what it is we are going to do and how we're going to do it. But sometimes we fail to stop and ask a couple of very simple questions. Who are we in the first place? Who has God made us to be? Who does God want us to be? Now, if you notice, those questions don't bring up what we're going to do at all. And it's for this one simple reason. We don't want to go and do without knowing who we are first. And we don't want to go and do without knowing who God wants us to be first. And so this vision statement really is a statement of identity as much as it is a statement of anything else. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes what? Everything. It changes everything about us. It changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we see other people, the way we interact with other people. The love of God in Jesus changes everything. And then as we talked about last week, we have come up with four different values that we believe will help us hold up this vision as a church. And the first one that we introduced you to last week is this. Our first value is belong. Jesus changes the way we experience community. We are a family that accepts people as they are. Our family looks out for one another and encourages each other to be more like Jesus every day. We take responsibility for one another and strive to help each other know the love of Jesus in all of life's ups and downs. And the scripture this morning that helped us come to this particular statement comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up there, but I'll read it here for you this morning. From Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart 
And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This community that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is a community that is brought together and formed and led by who? By Jesus. It springs out of this newfound ability in Jesus to come close to God. This is a description of what our relationship is like when we understand that God knows our name. That he knows who we are. That we can come before him. That there is nothing in between us anymore. And because we can come before God shameless, clean through the blood of Jesus, it changes what community means. There are all different kinds of community we can be a part of. And a lot of them do really good things. But the community of God in Jesus will look different than any other community that you can ever be a part of. That's not to say they're bad. It's just to say there is a difference. And we identified four things that we took from our statement. We are a family that accepts people as they are. We want to be a place that accepts others. That allows them to come in and discover who Jesus is. Our family looks out for one another and encourages each other to be more like Jesus every day. We want to be in each other's lives, encouraging each other, helping each other get over things that are in our way, helping each other to lean upon God. We take responsibility for one another and strive to help each other know the love of Jesus in all of life's ups and downs. We are accountable to one another. We don't want anyone in this room to just go away and disappear. We want to constantly encourage you and lift you up before God. And finally, we want to be a place of help. That no matter where you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what's going on in your life, when you come to this place, you will find what you need in God through Jesus as we love one another as Jesus told us to. That is our first value. It's a pretty good one, right? Our second one, which we're introducing to you today, is grow. And the thought behind grow is that we are changing the way that we see ourselves. Who are we? How would we describe ourselves? Well, here's a shot at it. We are imperfect people. In every moment, in everything we do, we need the love and grace of God that is found in Jesus. This need defines us but it does not discourage us. There is always something better in Jesus and we want to continually grow into that something. There will be much more to come on this subject, but as we finish the introduction here today, I want you to do something for me this morning. You've got plenty of time to do it. Take a card or a notebook out of the pew in front of you and I want you to answer this question. 
What are two words that you would have used to describe yourself when you were 10, 20, 40, and so on? I'll let you determine how old you want to be within this exercise. (laughs) But how would you describe yourself at these different points in your life? See if you can come up with two words. I hope that as we uh, have been going through uh, our our vision statement and some of the values that we're talking about, I hope that there is something growing inside of you. Um, Not some sort of tumor, (laughs) but I hope that you are starting to get excited. Um, I, I know that sometimes when we talk about things that are very much conceptual, which that's where we are right now, this is a concept that we're talking about. We want some concrete answers. So what is this going to do? How is it going to work? What's it going to look like? And we are going to get to all of those things. But here is something that is at the core of what we are trying to do right now as a church. We are trying to ask ourselves the question, what would happen if we completely open ourselves up, who we are, what we are going to do, what we're going to be about, what would happen if God changes everything and changes things for us? That's not a question we always like to ask as churches. Um, In fact, it's probably one that we run away from whenever we can. That word change is so offensive to us at times that we don't want to ask that question. And the reason why we don't want to ask that question, what do we need to change, is because we think that if there's something that needs to change... There is something wrong with us. And we don't want there to be anything wrong with us. We want to be doing things the way that God has us do them. And so there's this conflict within us. Maybe God will change something. But we're scared of what that might mean. We're scared of where that might take us. Well, I've said this to you multiple times, but I'm going to say it to you again, and you're going to hear me repeating myself a lot for the next 12 years. God changing things is a good thing. God changing you is a good thing. God changing us as a church is a good thing. And we have to, at this time, as we're going through these things, we need to put aside our fears. We need to put aside our worries. And we need to put aside our concerns. For this very reason. We want to be aware of the good that God wants to bring through changing us. And if we're holding tight to what we think might happen or what we've seen happen before or what could happen again, we may miss something. 
We may miss something. Some way that God is trying to speak to us. Because surely God doesn't want us to do that. Something that God might try to show us. Because God can't mean that. Where we are at this moment in time, if we will embrace it, is a very exciting place. It just is. It's about as enthusiastic as I get about anything. It's a good place to be. Because we are asking ourselves, we are challenging ourselves to speak to our Father and to show us what He wants us to become. Now, as I've told you, I've been in ministry for 22 years and I've done this lots of times and never in all my experience has it been like this, which is an exciting thing to me. And I hope you're excited about it as well. And if you're not, I hope you can get excited about it. But here's what I want us, how I want us to start this morning and what I want you to consider doing over at least the next four months. It's a simple task to do. I want you to pray about two things. God, what do you want to change in me? Second one, God, what do you want to change about us as a church? With the understanding that whatever change God brings to us is what we want. It's what we want, right? We want God to take us to the next place. I, I have this I have this thing that I found um, and I can't remember where I found it, but um, it, it said something to the effect of change is a very scary thing to us, but it's not nearly as bad as being in the place you were never meant to be. Think about that for a second. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try to say it again. Change is a scary thing for us, but it's not nearly as bad as being stuck in the place we were never meant to be. So, we are at the most exciting of places. Because if we're willing to open ourselves up to what God will tell us, then guess what? God will change us and good things will happen. So maybe we pray for willingness. Maybe we pray for encouragement. Maybe we pray for revelation that God would show us what we need to overcome and what he wants to put before us. But whatever we're going to do the most of over this next four months is we're going to pray. Because we as a leadership are not standing up here telling you everything that we're going to do. We are standing up here telling you what we think God wants from us and we are inviting you 
to help us figure this out. And I am inviting you to look at this process as a process of discovery. That this question might hang out in front of you. What could happen if God changes things? What could happen if God changes things? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you change things. God, we are afraid of change. Change can be difficult. It can cause us to look at ourselves in ways that we don't want to. It can call into question who we have been and what we have done. But Father, may we view this as not something bad about us, but something good about you. That even when things are good, you are changing us to something better. That even when things are as wonderful as we believe they could be, that God, there is something better. For you are a God of infinite possibilities. Because you change everything. Help us, Father, to be a part of the change that you are bringing to us as individuals, to this church, and that you want to bring to the world, that we may join you in changing lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first value, as we talked about last week, is belong, that Jesus changes the way we experience community. We are a family that accepts people as they are, Our family looks out for one another and encourages each other to be more like Jesus every day. We take responsibility for one another and strive to help each other know the love of Jesus in all of life's ups and downs. Some of you, as you consider this value, can probably already think of times where the community of faith has done these very things for you. I know it has done it for me and my family, that the community of God has been this kind of place. And what we're saying here is we want to be this kind of place on purpose. We're not going to wait for it to happen. We are going to become this kind of place on purpose through the help of God. And the verse that goes along with this value is not on my notes because I was looking down. But today we are going to talk about our second vision value. And as I said earlier, the second vision value is grow, changing the way we see ourselves. Who are we? We are imperfect people. In every moment, in everything we do, we need the love and grace of God that is found in Jesus. This this is an important clause here. I want you to hear this. This need for God defines us, but it does not discourage us. There's always something better in Jesus and we want to continually grow into that something. How many of you remember the two words I strung together last week that I asked you to remind me of? Oh, it's tough. There we go. The phrase that we used last week was perpetually becoming. We are perpetually becoming. 
We're always becoming. We are always growing. And here is the verse that goes with this value from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, I've already given you a lot of questions and things to think about. Hopefully earlier today, uh, earlier this morning, you went ahead and wrote some descriptions of yourself from these different ages. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But here's a really important question. Of, of all the values I think we're going to talk about, this one might be the most challenging at its core. Here's the question. How does experiencing the love of God in Jesus change the way we see ourselves? So we're, cha- we're saying that it should change the way we see ourselves. But how does it change the way we see ourselves? And Bryce, what do you even mean when you say this thing? It's an interesting question, one which I don't know if you have given very much thought to before. But I have to tell you this. If you are going to experience the changing love of God in Jesus, then one of the very first things that has to change is how you look at yourself. How you look at yourself. How you view yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been in this passage for the past three weeks off and on. But listen to it again. Verses 14 through 17. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once looked at Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. As Paul writes, what do we become in Christ? We become new creations. What happens to the old us? It goes away. Sometimes we have this idea, I think, when we talk about God changing us, that God changes like 60% of us. And we hold on to this 40%. Maybe depending on who you're talking to or how you feel at the moment, the percentages may change. But understand what he says here. There was a you, and that you met Jesus. And after that you met Jesus and understood who Jesus was, guess what? There is a new you. There's a new you. The old is gone. We have to change the way that we see ourselves if God is going to transform us. 
If we are not willing to look at who we are, what we are about, what we do, then God will not change us in the way that God desires to change us. Because we're going to hold on to that 40%, that 50%, that 60%, and we're going to just allow God to have the rest. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says you are a new creation and the old is gone. The old is gone. So if we're going to change, we have to be able to see the old life that needs to go away and the new life that God is calling us to. I could walk up to my boys and I could say, change your underwear. And Jed might say, what's underwear? Dad, how can I change something when I don't know what it is? There is a certain self-awareness, church, that has to come with this. That we have looked at ourselves, understood ourselves, and understand what it is that Jesus wants to change about us. And again, not just in one moment, but continually. Okay. You still didn't answer your question. What specifically needs to change about us and the way we see ourselves? So I'm just going to lay it out for you here. You may like or dislike this statement. It's still going to be said and be on the screen. Experience the love of God in Jesus. Experiencing the love of God in Jesus kills our sense of self-competency and fosters our sense of total dependency. If you want to know at its core what knowing Jesus does to you, it does this. It kills your sense of self-competency and fosters your sense of total dependency. There is something true about every single person in this room. We all struggle with wanting to be competent in control, and in charge of our respective lives. And we also want to control the direction of the church. We want to do things we like to do how we like to do them. And if someone is not going to do them like we want to do them, what do we do? We do not do it. (laughs) Sounds like Paul. Now, This is true about all of us, but Jesus calls us to something else. And fortunately for us, we get to see someone go through this process from beginning to end in the Bible. So we don't have to guess what this looks like. We don't have to speculate. We have the story of Peter. And in the story of Peter, we see someone who starts from very little and becomes something great. But I'm not spoiling any surprises here when I say that Peter, though he becomes great, never stopped growing. Oh, he tried a few times. But he never stopped growing. The rock that the church was built on, God had more for him to do than just sit there and be a rock. Our story uh, starts out in Luke chapter 5 at the calling of Peter, verses 1 through 11. 
One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who is Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This story is a microcosm for everything that happens in Peter's life. Okay? Jesus comes down the shore. He's got to know a little bit about who Jesus is. We know that he was a fisherman, so he's probably a pretty rough dude, but he makes his living through manual labor. Uh, We know that he was married, a pretty intelligent man, and that he had a strong belief in God. And we know that from his response, that he believed in God. And in some way, he also had an understanding of the importance that Jesus held. But I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He had a crowd of people following him as he taught, and so he got into Peter's boat, probably by accident. Not really. Then he tells Peter to go cast into the deep water. And, and Peter is a fisherman by trade. And these are the waters that he works. And how long has he been working them? All night. And how much has he caught? Bubkiss, Right? It's done. They're fishing at night for what reason? So they can catch fish because the fish can't see them as well if it's dark. But you fish during the day, like it's more difficult. Particularly if you're in a boat in the middle of the water, trying to catch them by net. There's a reason why fishermen who are fishing with a pole don't stand in one place and drop it straight down. Right? So, They get out there and and Peter says, Master, we've done this, but fine. Okay, I will throw the nets to the other side of the boat. And what happens? They catch more than they can handle. More than they as people can handle, more than their nets can handle, more than their boats can handle. And And that was an amazing moment. Because what did Peter have to accept? What does he do for a living? Who's a better fisherman? Jesus. Jesus calls him from the place of what he may be best at in the world and does it better than him. 
And then he says, I will give you a new mission. You're not going to fish for fish. You're going to fish for people. But that couldn't have happened if Peter was unable to accept that he was in the presence of something bigger than himself. So the first lesson we get from the life of Peter is this. Whatever you believe you are capable of, Jesus is more capable. Whatever you believe you are more capable of, Jesus is more capable. He can sing better than you. He can draw better than you. He will create a guitar and play it better than you. He is more capable. Now, in Peter's story, we're going to skip forward a little bit. Within the Gospels, Peter definitely stands out. He's often the most vocal person uh, amongst the disciples. Uh, He makes uh, some leaps of faith and logic more quickly than uh, some of the other guys do. And and he stands out, both for his faith and his enthusiasm. And to be truthful, he was really getting the hang of this apostle thing. He was getting the hang of of being around Jesus and doing Jesus kinds of things and, and helping manage the crowd and do all this different stuff. He was doing well. And we have this encounter between Jesus and Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? And who answers? Peter. You know why? Peter is the one who answers. What about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Okay, this is a big moment in anyone's life. What does it tell us about Peter? He gets it. Peter gets it. He gets what's going on. He gets who Jesus is. He believes he is the Son of God. This is... In the Gospels, this is the first proclamation of faith that we really get to see of someone saying, this is who you are. And Jesus' response to him is what? You are absolutely right. And because you have faith in me and you have come to this decision, you will be the rock upon which this church is built. But beyond that, he is going to have power and authority to bind and to loose spiritual things. It's like he was dipped in radiation and came out as a superhero. Because that's what happens, right? You fall into something. But why? Because he believes in Jesus and has decided, per his statement, that he will put Jesus first. He is a disciple and a follower of Jesus. 
And Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It's a big moment. This is a big moment. For the rest of his life, Peter is going to be referred to as the rock. The one who will establish the church. Question. How long does it take for Peter to mess this up? Let's go to the next verse. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I imagine some other things were said to you. I don't even know why you would say this. You know, what's, what's the matter? This is not the mission that God has for you. This is not what God, to go and die, get real. Have you been watching yourself? So we go and do this, Jesus, get your head back on straight, and let's go do this God thing. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, who? Is that a different spelling of Peter, or is it actually say Satan? You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in... Listen to this. This is, this is important. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Okay. Peter's got whiplash at this point. Because this happens so fast. But what happened? It's pretty simple. While in the previous verses, he had claimed dependence upon God and upon Jesus and had put Jesus forward as the one who was in control and determining everything, in the last part of it, he promptly changed course and decided who was going to be the voice for God. He was. And if Jesus needs to be put straight, he was going to be the one to do it. And so he does. In full assurance of everything, he steps forward and believes that he has the knowledge, the intellect, the moral high road to know what is going on here. To Jesus. To Jesus. Peter had been around Jesus enough. He knows what Jesus is all about. He's seen Jesus handle all kinds of different situations. So how on earth could he think it was a good idea to rebuke him and tell him that he was wrong about everything? And Jesus responds quickly and harshly. Quickly and harshly. By calling him what? Satan, a stumbling block to me. Which if you recognize there's a stumbling block, what do you do? You destroy it or move it. You're a stumbling block to me. You are concerned not about the things of God, but about human concerns. Now, I want you to understand something about this transaction and why it is so hard. What did Jesus need to have happen in Peter's mind? He needed something to happen to Peter. 
And that was this. Peter needed to feel shame. He needed to be ashamed of what he had just done. Because he stood up for God against the Son of God. And what did he not realize? I mean, at one point, he was the one speaking up for God. This was revealed to you by the Father. And now who is he speaking for? Himself. You know why? He doesn't want anything that Jesus said to happen. And so, I don't believe this. This can't be. You've got to be wrong. But Jesus wanted him to be humbled and even humiliated. But then he quickly identified the trap that he had fallen into. He had begun to prioritize human concerns and plans over the concerns of plans of God. So what does Jesus tell him and the rest of his disciples? Whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for him will find it. The lesson that we learn, even if you are following God and doing what he wants you to do, you are constantly in danger of putting yourself back before him. That makes me more than a little bit uncomfortable. But it's true. Even if you are following God and doing what he wants you to do, you are constantly, constantly in danger of putting yourself back before him and prioritizing the things that you want and calling them the things of God. What do we need to know about ourselves? That this is possible. Any time, any place, any moment. Now, Peter had a bit of a rough go after this. He stuck uh, with Jesus up until the arrest. He even tried to defend Jesus by cutting off some dude's ear. Um, But then when Jesus was arrested and taken away, Peter abandoned Jesus, even going so far as to tell others that he had never known Jesus and has no idea who he is. Sometimes, side note, I think we underestimate what a disorienting event the death of Jesus was for his disciples. As much as Jesus told them over and over again this is what's going to happen, when it actually happened, it's like they were hit by a bus, which I know didn't exist at that time, but still. It altered their world. It altered their world in a devastating way to where they didn't... They spent three years following this guy. And now he's dying. They left family, jobs, friends. And now he's dead. But after the resurrection, Peter was reinstated by Jesus and given the command to go and take care of those who would follow Jesus. And I have to believe that there's a lot of learning that takes place within Peter's mind. This is the second time now within the Gospels that he's being called out specifically. We just read the first one, and this time he's being reminded that he had walked away. But Jesus reinstates him and gives him the great responsibility of going forward. He waited with the others as Jesus had instructed them to there around the temple. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Spirit, 
was the one who stood up and gave the first gospel message centered around the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Peter is the one who stood up and did it. After all, he is that guy. Okay? But what should surprise us is what he says. Because the Peter who stands up in Acts 2 is completely filled with what? The Holy Spirit. Which means who is actually speaking? God is. And Peter doesn't. God speaks through him. And he gives the best possible sermon through the power of God to the group of people that are standing there that day. He ties in prophets. He ties in King David. He convicts them saying that you have done these things and he calls them to come and follow this Jesus who you killed but now is raised from the dead. Go back and read Acts chapter 2 and see what he says. See how he's quoting scripture verbatim. See how he ties things together in this seamless way. He is the one that stands up to do this. But how was he able to do this? He put himself aside and stood up within what was a dangerous situation and spoke the gospel truth and did not pull a single punch. He smacked people upside the head with what they had done and gave them the opportunity to choose. And how many people chose? A lot. The lesson. The more you rely on God and put yourself aside, the more God is able to do through you. Simple fact. The more you rely on God and put yourself aside, the more God is able to do through you. So at this point, Peter has reached the top. Right? Like he's got this now. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He becomes the main voice in the early church. He was listening to God. He was doing what God was telling him to do. So that's like all we know about Peter, right? Peter still had a few more things to learn from God. So let me set the scene for you. God had spoken to a Roman military officer named Cornelius. The thing that's important about that is Cornelius was not Jewish, which made him a Gentile, which means technically he was on the outside of everything that was going on. And around noon the next day, after God had spoken to Cornelius, Peter is up on the roof praying, and he slips into a vision. And this giant sheet-like thing rolls down from heaven, and on the sheet are all kinds of different animals. Animals that the Jewish people are not supposed to eat by law. And this is my favorite moment. It happens in the Bible often. I just love it when this happens. Peter starts talking to the sheet. (laughs) Moses talked to a bush. Balaam talked to a donkey. The donkey talked back. There's just all these moments in the Bible. But he starts to talk to this sheet. A voice told him, to go ahead and eat this food. But Peter's like, no, I do not eat unclean food. And the voice says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And the voice says to him again, eat. And Peter says, no. And the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And the voice says, eat. And Peter says, 
No. And the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The thing goes up, Peter wakes up, and guess what happens next? There's a knock on the door. And do you know who's there? It's a servant of Cornelius from Acts chapter 10, verses 17 through 23, and then 46 through 48. While Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It's pretty explicit, right? Peter went down and said to the man, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The man replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the man into his house to be his guest. So he goes with them back to Cornelius' house and he speaks to them about Jesus. And they all decide, Why don't we get baptized? And Peter is still a little iffy about this whole thing. I mean, baptizing Gentiles is its not what you do. It's not what you do. You don't do this. So he's not really sure about it. But God helps Peter by sending the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his entire family before he baptizes them. Because the way it went at that time was That's when you got the gift of the Holy Spirit was when you were baptized and would show up in this miraculous way. And so God sends the Holy Spirit and it shows up before Peter baptizes them. And then Peter, who is not such a knucklehead anymore, though he is still hard-willed arguing with a sheet from heaven, we give him that. Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Listen, Peter thought he knew what it was all about. But he has grown. And when God comes to him and speaks to him, what we need to pay attention to is the way that God speaks to him. God does not rebuke him. God does not yell at him. Instead, he gives him an object lesson talks about eating food, sends the Gentile to his door, tells him to go with him. He goes, and as Peter is still uneasy, God says, I accept them, and gives them the Holy Spirit. And what is Peter left to think? Well, I'll be, you know, I I, I didn't think this was what was going to happen, but I guess, I. anyone? No? Okay, well, let's baptize them then. Because God has already accepted them. God is patient with Peter. Why? What has changed about him? He has understood who he was, what he had done, and how God was changing him. And he understood something else, though he wrestles with it, that God is still changing him. So he goes with it. And you know what happens after this? He has to go back to Jerusalem and explain to everyone why he baptized these Gentiles. And people do not like it. 
But Peter becomes the voice that stands up and says, God's mission is going past us. It's not just about us anymore. He wants to go and save the world. The lesson. No matter what you have done or accomplished for God, God has somewhere else for you to go, something you need to grow into. You are never done growing. Period. You are never done growing. Ron's going to share with you for a moment about what that looked like in his life. Cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. Cheer up. You're far more loved than you could ever imagine. When our son J.D. sent those two phrases to me in an email, and they were part of a class he was going through, um, the first one really disturbed me. I'm still struggling to process that. And yet every day I'm coming to realize more and more how true that first statement is. For all my life, my goal has been to know more. But knowing more hasn't made me more like Jesus. Often knowing more has fed my pride and made me less like Jesus. Seems the New Testament says something about that. Knowledge puffeth up. I seem to remember somewhere. I want you to notice something about the statement and the substatement underneath grow, changing the way we see ourselves. What's missing? There's something missing, which is the natural thing I would think about. There's no mention in that statement in terms of a value about classes or education or increasing what we know. Because growing isn't primarily about increasing what we know. And one of the things that I'm coming, just coming to realize is I think I know where I need to grow, but I really don't. Jesus knows where I need to grow, and so he'll lead me into places where I'm uncomfortable and need to depend on him. For example, my comfort zone is teaching adults. Now, I know one of the number one fears for people is um, public speaking. A lot of people would be terrified to stand and do what I'm doing right now. I'm not. Haven't been for a long, long time. However, I do have uncomfortable zones. Interactions with children. Um And so seven years ago, we decided to volunteer in Suzanne's second grade classroom. And I went from someone who was competent 
to someone who was incompetent. From leading to following, from teacher to learner, going through that process. And what was most important and what continues to be most important about that process is learning how much I need God and his help and how much he loves to provide it. So we're going along and we're continuing to learn in Suzanne's class. And what do you think God does? He brings someone back into our lives who is a teacher of kids with special needs. And there's another classroom to volunteer in. This is way out of my comfort zone. Because it turns out what I know isn't going to do any good at all. A six-year-old with Down syndrome isn't impressed with what you know. They are impressed if you can bounce, balance a ball on top of their head. Um, and so we're continuing to learn. I'm continuing to learn. And I want you to recognize how much this ties into the belong value. Because when we belong, we speak the truth to one another and encourage one another to stretch ourselves to step out into unfamiliar territory. We do new things. We build new relationships. We choose to step out of our comfort zone. I don't have any question about God's desire to lead us out of our comfort zones. I'm totally confident of that. The question is whether we will choose to follow. Now, like Peter, I fail often. We will fail often. We are far worse than we think we are. But Jesus changes everything. And we can and will grow because we are far more loved than we can ever imagine. All right, so were you the person that you were when you were 10? Goodness, I hope not. What about when you were 20? Think about everything you thought you knew at 20. 30? 40? What do you know about yourself as you look back? Wouldn't you just love to go to talk to old you and say, look, brother, you could make a better choice than this. What's the difference? You are older and more distinguished looking for sure. But the main difference between you now and you before is that you understand things more than you did then. You see yourself more clearly. You see the world in a different way. You have grown in your understanding of God, yourself, and the world, and that growth is a really good thing. I mean, sometimes you learn by choice, but other times they were forced on you. But either way, what happened? You grew up. You became something that you were not when you were 10 or 20 
or 30. We want to be a place of growth, a people that are perpetually becoming. And in order to have that happen, we have to change the way we see ourselves as individuals because God kills our sense of self-sufficiency and fosters our sense of dependence. And the story of my life and this church is not all that we have accomplished. Because guess what? We don't accomplish squat on our own. When it becomes about us, what happens? The wheels fall off every time. But if God is behind it, if God is speaking to us, if we are listening to Him, if we are following Him, then God does things that only God can do in our lives, in the life of this church. We are not done growing. We're not. And we look forward with excited anticipation to the answer to this question. God, if we opened up everything to you and asked you to change whatever you saw fit, what could happen? What could happen? God, you are a God who changes us and we are grateful for that change. God, we are pulling on the controls to our life, trying to take them from you in so many moments. God, will you help us to see where we are resisting you and how you have something better for us. God, will you help us to trust you that the challenging things you are putting us into, God, that you will give us all that we need to succeed for you. And God, may you make us a people who are proudly dependent. For we know that you are greater than us. And we ask you to be greater than us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any needs this morning for encouragement or prayer, you want to know this God who loves you, you want to give your life to him in a way that you haven't before, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song together.